Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. In the studio this morning, well, Dr. Mal's away, and we've got Dr. Moto who's panelling for us. We've got Dr. Misunderstood, we're going to work on her name, and I'm Nosepi Penn, and we've got two esteemed guests, from one from the Alfred Hospital and one from Deakin University. So first up, we've got uh, Dr. Ian Abbott, who's an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist at the Alfred, and he leads an antimicrobial pharmacological research group at the Department of Infectious Diseases Central Clinical School at Monash University. And then we've got Professor Lisa Gold, who leads research in the economics of maternal and child health at Deakin Health Economics, Deakin University. Lisa is an economic an economist with particular expertise in economic evaluation of health and social interventions that aim to improve population health and reduce health inequalities for Australian children and their families. So, pretty exciting guests we've got in the show today. Um, so, first up, I think we might have... Um, uh, Dr. Moto is going to do a bit of a catch-up for us and tell us something that's been topical in the news. Over to you, Dr. Moto. Thanks so much, Nurse EpiPen. It's a real delight to be on the show. I um, feel I'm feeling I'm sort of crashing the show a little bit, but Dr. Mel did ask me to um, participate and join in, and you know, it's a real delight to be trying the panel again and I hope I um, make everything work. How are you this morning? Yes, very good, thank you. It's our last uh, weekend before the end of daylight saving. Oh, I wish you hadn't reminded us of that. I know, I always hate that. I mean, I like it brighter when we get up, but I love the summer and autumn. Indeed, and how are you, Miss Misunderstood? I'm very well, thank you, Dr Motto. But yes, I do do love the light evenings, but I think the mornings I'm finding much harder to get up. I look forward to a yeah. light morning. Terrific, terrific. Dr Moto, I think you have something interesting I, to tell I us I about. I do, I do have exciting news. Um, and um, look, this is a bit of a technical study, but I think it might be of interest. It certainly caught my interest. Um, some of you might know that my area of um, research interest is in brain stimulation techniques, um, particularly in psychiatry and neurology. And, um, you know, as we know, every part of the body is controlled by the brain, whether oh, you indeed. like it or not. Right. And I've just come back from the International Brain Stimulation Conference in Portugal last month, and um, there was a very, very interesting study that was published um, and presented by a um, team in um, Brazil. And it's not really um, using brain stimulation techniques to treat brain disorders. It was actually trying to treat um, adult respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. So this caught my interest. I've got the paper here in front of me. And what they did was um, there is a technique that has been around for about 20 years called transcranial direct current stimulation, where you apply a very, very low amplitude um, electrical current to the surface of the brain. It, you know, you um, don't really feel it a lot of the time. Some people might feel a little bit of tingling or a little bit of heat. Um, but the idea is that you're applying this very, very low voltage across certain designated parts of the brain to affect the um, electrophysiology or the electrical signals that occur in the brain. And they applied um, this technique to the part of the brain that um, controls the diaphragm. It's the mo part of the motor cortex or the part of the brain, um, but, part the, but the part of the motor cortex that controls the diaphragm specifically. And they had um, 56 critically ill people with COVID-19 and they were randomised on a one-to-one -one fashion so they were randomly allocated to either get this treatment or get a sham treatment. So the, the, the device was placed, you know, people didn't know whether it was um, happening or not um, and like I said, you can't really feel it. 
and um, and everyone um, got uh, respirat- intensive respiratory rehabilitation, regardless, as per treatment of care. And um, the people who had this technique applied to their heads did a lot better. They um, they were breathing a lot better. The primary outcome they were looking at was um, ventilator-free days during the first 28 days. Like, I think about a third of the participants, you know, got so unwell they had to be admitted to ICU. And um, about half of those people actually needed mechanical ventilation. You know, they were really, really sick um, COVID patients. This study was done in 2020. And, um, you know, before Delta and before some of the more recent waves of COVID that we think are, you know, less virulent. But, you know, these were really, really sick patients. And the people who effectively had a bit of an electrical boost to the part of their brain that controls their diaphragm, believe it or not, did better. So what do you think, I want to use the term biological plausibility here, what do you think it actually did to the diaphragm it relaxed it it what what's your hypothesis it actually so um the 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 putative mechanism at least is that it strengthened the connection between the part of your brain that's controlling your diaphragm right so it's sort of giving it a little bit of a boost you you know your, your body is trying to breathe right it's hypoxic it's lacking oxygen and it needs to suck in more oxygen but part of the feature of um, being in respiratory distress is that um, despite your efforts, you can't get enough air in or you can't expand the lungs enough. And a lot of that is related to, you know, needing to pull that diaphragm down enough so that your lungs can draw in air. Um, and, um, you know, there is also evidence that, you know, in respiratory distress, people's lungs or, you know, their um, um, rib cages and the musculature involved in drawing in air, it does actually get fatigued. And it's almost like a bit of a slippery slope. Um, I'm sort of peering at Dr. Abbott out of the corner of my eye because I'm speaking beyond my depth here, right? He's the <laughs> physician. I just tinker with stuff from the neck up. And, um, um, and you know, you, you're in this state where, you know, your lungs and the breathing respiratory musculature is fatigued and you're getting a bit of a... A, a bit of a, 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 a bit of doping, a bit of injection, a bit mm-hmm. of, yeah, boost to get that happening. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do ICU rounds and I'm always amazed by the intricacies of what either ICU doctors do or the whole body um, approach to various problems that they have. It's, it's fascinating, yeah. Was it, were, how many patients were in the study? 56. So that's 28 So it's about 28 and, and 28, yeah. yeah. And do they think that that's something that they might incorporate in treatment in the future? Possibly. You know, Watch this as, space. As they say, every great journey starts with one step, and this is one step. And, you know, um, because this is my field, I tend to be a bit scrupulous when it comes to methodology with these things and without wanting to bore our um, audience. <laughs> um, but I, I had a look at their sham control and their study design, and it's, it's pretty good. Mm. Um, and they even built in what – okay, just um, spare me another 10 seconds, if you may, um, Nesepi Pen. But, um, you know, they even um, – evaluated um, whether the investigators were able to guess the patient's randomization group and it was not guessed like the, it was not statistically significant mm-hmm. they weren't able to guess who was mm-hmm. in what so mm-hmm. that the blinding the sham mm-hmm. um, randomization was actually really good so it's fascinating mm. sounds really interesting fascinating. Mm. the good old brain gotta love it so, um, moving on, I think this is a new part of our show, which we love, and I think I'm going to have to bring in some buzzers. So, we've brought in um, a segment where we're going to have a little quiz, and it was my turn last month, and Misunderstood, Dr. Misunderstood, is going to do the quiz for today, <clears throat> and I'll pass it over to her. Thanks, Abby Penn, and I think this week we're inviting the guests to participate as well. Um, which gives them a bit of an advantage, or, although maybe I'll speak too soon, but I did two questions that were based on today's topics. And then the last question is based on um, a recent discovery in the medical field. Um, so hopefully we all... I hopefully I haven't embarrassed the guests now if they don't get their, their <laughs> relevant question right, but we'll see. Maybe they, they might be generous and let the other panels panellers just um, have a go. 
Okay, so my first question is, um, and thank you very much to ChatGPT for uh, the answer to this one, but how did Alexander Fleming discover penicillin? Hands up. Oh, I can put my hand up. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Dr. Abbott. I don't know. There's, there's, there's fantastic, um, like, either pictures or drawings of the agar plates, which, um, which were used to the hypothesis of, of penicillin and, and, you know, that we had antibiotics, uh, sorry, bacteria growing on, on agar plates and spores of penicillin, which is penicillium, which is a, the fungus from, from which um, the antibiotic penicillin come, has come from, you know, settled on the plates and killed the bacteria. And, um, and that was enough of a hypothesis to, to drive further discovery. Yes, that, that's much more detailed than the answer I've got. I'll get, pass over Dr. Moto. You've got a... But um, is it true that that was discovered by mistake? Like, I heard some story about how in this lab in England, they had this egg plate that effectively fell off the bench and rolled to the corner of the room. Um, and, you know, when the cleaners were coming to clean it up, they found the egg plate and found some white stuff growing on it. Yeah, look, I think I think there's um, there's a lot of myth behind all these things. Um, I think there is probably quite good science, um, but never let the truth get in the way of a good story. I think. Well, yes, that's what Chat GPT. The word I was looking for was accident. <laughs> is what I've heard the myth, but it may myth or truth. We the don't myth's know. always a better story. Yes. though, so let's go with that. Yes, it is true, Professor Gold. All right, question two. How much do Medicare rebate you for a standard GP consultation? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll put my hand up, but I yep. don't actually know the answer. I think it's about $36. Oh, it has increased. I did see that on my Googling, but I've, I saw a few numbers, but I think the one I've got is most recent, so it has increased since then. It would have gone up in January, so that's yes. why it's Okay, <laughs> I think... I've got so it's thirty nine point seven five dollars for how long though? For how a many standard, minutes? Is that fifteen? It's a level B visit, which is what most visits are billed at. So it is it is the most common one. But I do have to say the most important change that happened in January is that the PBS subscription um, subsidy went up, so we're all paying a bit less for our um, drugs. Great, great. Um, and question three: This is recent news. In fact, a few days ago. Um, an article was published that researchers at Michigan State University have recently found doing what may make medications more effective. I'm sure there are lots of things that you could do to make medications more effective, but what did Michigan State University researchers find? Um, Have medicines on an empty stomach? No. Any other ideas from any of the panellists? Put them in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's true, but that's not what the researchers found. And Dr. Motto, you might be able to help um, my explanation of this answer, but apparently listening to your favourite song can help um, enhance the effectiveness of medication. Um, they particularly looked at it in 12 patients who experienced chemia-induced nausea, which apparently is a neurological condition, not a gut issue. Um, and I think the the mechanisms are not very well known, and it was 12 patients all listening to their favourite songs, so there was no control group, Um, and they said that it was more effective at reducing nausea, and I think it might have something to do with serotonin, but, and serotonin, does that cause nausea? I'm not sure. I was very, yes, oh, Dr. Abbott can help us. I was just going to make a comment. I think sound is really important. Like if you think of the soundscape in a hospital, which is actually not a nice place to uh, to be a patient in with alarms going off and the, and the, in fact, the tone of the alarm machine is just so piercing. And if you're a patient in a, you're constantly on alert because you're like going, is that an important alarm? Is it not an alarm? Why, why are people ignoring the alarms? You know, um, so, so the health benefit of of having, you know, a good soundscape is is maybe something that hospitals need to look at. Yes, pleasant, yeah, the, the, the reduce the stress. So, yeah, really, really interesting, yeah, thought. Uh, and so when the nurses go around on the medication round, they'll hand out headphones to all the patients and plug them into some music. Or they could be singing themselves, Nurse EpiPen. Oh. That could be a good or a bad thing. If you've heard <laughs> it could be more stressful, yes. <laughs> This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, 
head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We're just about to start chatting with Dr Ian Abbott, who is an infectious disease expert from Monash University. Um, I've, I'm really fascinated, I guess, and perhaps concerned about anti- antibacterial resistance. So I'm very excited to have this conversation with you, Dr Abbott. But I guess before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into your area? Oh, um, I think it, well, there's no doubt that infectious diseases is the best specialty in all of medicine. Um, <laughs> and I could say that as completely unbiased. Uh, but, I was uh, just about to turn off the panel just now. <laughs> oh, they all say that, don't but, they, Dr Moto? But, but, off. but one, of the, one of the amazing parts of infectious diseases is how it affects the entire global One Health approach. So it's animals, it's humans, but there's also history with antibiotic, with bacteria, and and you know they were along, around way before humans, and and in fact you know we've just sort of a real blip in their evolution uh, for humans. So so it's such a fascinating um, specialty in itself. So let's start with antibiotics. How do they work? Yeah, I mean, antibiotics are amazing. Uh, you know, they've saved, you know, countless lives and they essentially kill bacteria by either stopping them uh, replicating or bursting their cells. Um, and so, in effect, it's a, it's a pretty blunt instrument um, to kill bacteria, but, um, but extremely effective at what they do. Uh-huh. And um, are there particular uh, symptoms or tests that we know somebody's got a bacterial infection? I think it's one of the difficulties, isn't it, with, when a, you know, someone has a respiratory tract infection, differentiating between a viral infection and a, bac and a bacterial infection. So viral infections don't need antibiotics, whereas a bacterial infection would, is one of the very difficulties that we have. There are certain blood tests, certain clinical syndromes, which would suggest a bacterial infection is more likely and therefore would prompt the use of antibiotics. But really being judicious in our choice of when to use antibiotics is one of the you know, key you know, cornerstones of, of infectious diseases management. Yeah, um, the, there is an interesting difference, I guess, between the virus and the inf um, bacteria infection. Sorry, my gosh, my words have disappeared. <laughs> Infection. Um, and I do have a question once we start talking a little bit about resistance that I might touch on. But as a consumer of antibacterials in my past, I've always been curious about why is it so important or how long is a course of antibiotics and why is it so important, important to take it even after you're feeling fine? Oh, now, this is a controversial question. And... Um, and the dogma has always been to take the antibiotics, take it as prescribed, and complete the entire course. Now, that has been the dogma for a very long time. We also don't really like people having secret supplies of, of antibiotics, which they squirrel away to pull out for, a, for another day, because that's, that's not always helpful. Um, there, there are two reasons to... Well, there's the main reason to take the antibiotics as directed. So if they say take it on an empty stomach or take it three times a day or four times a day is because antibiotics kill in different ways. And it's all about the exposure of the antibiotics. So absorption is really important to get appropriate blood levels of the antibiotic or levels of antibiotic at the site of infection. Um, and certain antibiotics you need to take more frequently because the levels dip down too quickly and so you need to repeat the dosing. So to, to take the antibiotic as directed, and I love pharmacists because pharmacists have, have such an eye for detail. So, so I always ask them specifically, should it be taken on an empty stomach or with food or how often should you take it? And they're very, you know, fantastic at the instructions. Now, Duration of therapy is, um, you know, how did we come up with that an, tr uh, treating an infection needs to be for five days or seven days or ten days? And, and usually, you know, I don't think bacteria really, you know, obey the days of the week to know that it needs to be five days or seven days. And it's usually it's just an easy way because five days is, you know, one hand. And, but Individualised medicine means that some patients will need a full course of therapy, which is what the treatment guideline would say to be successful in 99% of cases, whereas some patients might get away with less antibiotics. 
Now, having a way to differentiate between those patients is very difficult. And so the conservative approach is to say you need to treat for the entire course. You kind of um, touched on a topic I'm really interested. You mentioned individualised treatment. And in last month's show, we spoke about, I guess, um, personalised cancer treatment and, I guess, immunotherapy. This might show my ignorance. I'm not medically trained but can you do personalised antibacterial treatment? Is that... Yeah, so we, in a sense, we, we, when we treat infections, we have empiric treatment, which is we think this person has a clinical syndrome like pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, and we say, well, in the empiric guidelines are you would give this antibiotic. Then the next step is that a sample goes to the microbiology labo- laboratory. We culture the causative you know, bacteria, and then we do susceptibility testing in the laboratory to say, is an antibiotic going to be work or, or be resistant? And in a sense, in that report, that is slightly like personalised medicine because we say, look, of these antibiotics which we'd use to treat these infections, only three of them are going to be effective and these other two are going to be resistant, so don't use them. But the next level of personalised antibiotic therapy is talking about the dose of antibiotic and the duration and those factors take in the factors of the host which is the patient very important the bacteria also very important <laughs> and the also the site of infection and the and the and the dynamics of the drug and it's with that sort of triad of approach that we can think about smart ways of treating people um, now i'm going to come back to the duration of therapy because one of the biggest drivers for antimicrobial resistance is the length of therapy that you have someone on. So the longer you have someone on an antibiotic, the more likely you are to select out a resistant subpopulation or give the bacteria sufficient time to change in some way to become resistant. So the shortest course of antibiotic therapy with the correct antibiotic at the correct dose is going to be the best approach. So you've touched on resistance just then, and this is the main reason for having you here. And wow, what a subject, and how much is it in the paper these days? Could you just tell us a bit about the enormity and what's going on and superbugs and, you know, how could you be here for a couple of hours to explain oh, all of this? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the thing to take a step back is, is you know, Bacteria have been here for forever, way before us. And and in terms of um, the way a bacteria sees an antibiotic is it just sees it as, as a bit of a nuisance, really. And it, it, what what bacteria do is they just, they react. They there's It's dynamic evolution. And if you think of the doubling time of, of an E. coli, one of our most common bacteria is, is 20 minutes. You know, it doesn't take long for a bunch of E. coli to get together work out how to become resistant to ampicillin or, or ciprofloxacin. And so there's the, the dynamics of antimicrobial resistance is just natural evolution. Um, and how much of a problem is it? Well, I mean, it is a global problem. And it is a problem which crosses borders and affects multiple different people because there's infections affect, you know, you might have a one problem, which is an infection problem, but you might have other problems and then have, you know, have to have a heart transplant and be immunosuppressed and then you get an infection. And then if that's resistant, it can be really hard. So it has broader impacts other than just how do you treat pneumonia, for example. So we, um, so I'm thinking about some of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking about some of the things that we as in communities can do to reduce our risk of superbug development and and resistance, antimicrobial resistance. So I did a little, little bit of searching on this one because I'm particularly interested in it. And we've got to stop using antiseptics, antibacterials and things that go in our waterways. Um, so I've got a list here. Um, hand lotions, disinfectants, window cleaners cleaning cloths, surface sprays, mouthwashes, toothpastes, all sorts of things that we can do to personally to help this situation um, be reduced. Which Is that something that you... 
Well, I think it really touches on that one health approach to antimicrobial resistance. So it's not about only human health. It's also about it's about um, animal health. Um, it's also about agriculture, and and it's about clean waterways and um, and you know how we you know put pressure on the environment. Um, it's it's fascinating to know that you know in countries where they use antifungals in the environment a lot more that the fungal infections which affect their haematology patients are much more likely to be resistant. So there's a direct correlation with what happens in the environment to what affects our most vulnerable patients. Mm. Uh, also, um, patients not pressurising their GPs that they want antibiotics. Uh, I think that's something... Yeah. I think we're getting there, and I think GPs are much more uh, uh, not likely to prescribe antibiotics. You have to be really unwell now to get an antibiotic. It, it's very interesting when you think of who prescribes antibiotics because every single doctor prescribes an antibiotic. But but when you think of if antibiotics were chemotherapy agents, but only oncologists and haematologists have the you know, authority to prescribe those agents, whereas everyone can prescribe antibiotics. So, so perhaps the idea is that antibiotics are, are a critical resource and they should be used with care. And, you know, specific thought needs to go into, you know, um, the training and the qualification of who can and who can't prescribe antibiotics. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that's close to my heart is uh, vaccinations. So if we can vaccinate, get the community vaccinated against pneumococcal disease, which causes pneumonia and can get into your brain and your blood, um, meningococcal diseases, if we can, you know, sort of get the community on board a bit more about these. I think with the National Immunisation Program, all kids get the free vaccinations and... Uh, uh, would you like yeah. to comment on oh, that? Oh, look, I mean, prevention, obviously, so much better than trying to use sometimes quite toxic uh, antibiotics in, in lots of combinations. So if we can prevent uh, the infection in the first place, then that would be, you know, fantastic. Um, I just wanted to recap. So, um, EpiPen, did you say using toothpaste and window cleaner and surface cleaners, is that good or bad for...? I think it's you have to look at the packet. So if they've got the word antibacterial toothpaste, uh, toothpaste, that's they're the ones that we don't need. So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, so I was just wondering, in during COVID-19 then, when everyone was using wipes and a lot of, like, I guess, antibacterial, that kind of cleaning products, have you noticed an impact in resistance? Um, I have not seen that data to support that. Do you... Um, have any predictions? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um, you know when we talk about the chlorhexidine in in wipes, you know we know that you know Staph aureus can develop chlorhexidine resistance. It's not something that we would routinely test in a diagnostic laboratory in a hospital, um, but you know it's like anything you use it and lose it. Um, so um, so anything that we you know, that impacts on bacteria and our environment, we need to be thinking about it judiciously. Indeed. Um, uh, Dr Moto's got a question. I just wanted to circle back to that um, discussion about um, prescribing practices. Um, we all know that culture and economics drive a lot of how medicine is practised and therefore how prescriptions... Um, um, done and how um, scripts are filled and you know truth be told there are a, a lot of populations in the world who um, go to their doctors with an expectation of um, getting a script or being on something right and the doctors are compelled to do something to give them something give them some capsules or some tablets um, and I would anticipate it is often maybe not all the time but often in these settings that antibiotic overprescription or unnecessary prescription is particularly problematic. How do we go about combating that? How do we, you know, and, and, and we know that um, um, cultural, community, um, economic um, preferences or incentives trump science each and every time. Yeah, I think if there was an easy answer, we would have done it. <laughs> I, think, um, I think there is a lot of social 
behavioral science, which needs to be understood, and, and some of the really important qualitative research in terms of what are the drivers um, for either, for both from the doctor's perspective of prescribing, there's probably a bit of fear of missing a diagnosis, and so the safest thing is to give someone an antibiotic. And also from a patient perspective, exactly like you were saying, you know, they expect to, to you know, to leave the office with something. Um, but it's, um, it's a challenge. It really is. And I just wanted to give a big plug for disposing antibiotics. So don't flush them down the toilets. Don't put them in the rubbish bin. Take them back to your pharmacist and they will dispose of them appropriately. I think, and, and don't share them with friends. How many times have we heard in the past that, oh, I've got some amoxicillin. Why don't you just start that and see how you go? Well, that's such a no-no. Um, so I think education, I think conversations, and I think um, spreading the word, encouraging people, educating people that this, these practices aren't, you know, aren't very good. I'd also say that antibiotics aren't innocuous agents. You know, the effect that they have on your microbiome, for example, even just a single dose of some antibiotics can, can basically kill all those good bacteria and, and that can lead to other problems. And we're just sort of discovering more and more about the importance of all the bacteria that live inside us and how they actually promote health. And by disrupting that, it causes more problems than good. You've sort of just hinted on another thing about uh, probiotics. What, what are your thoughts on probiotics? Yeah, I think probiotics is, um, is a challenge because it's hard to um, regulate exactly how much bacteria is in a capsule, how much is alive, how much does it survive the gastric acid, and, um, and also what, what bacteria is do you need in an individual person? And we know that probably a single strain of a single bacteria is probably not what we need. It needs to be, you know, what we describe as live biological products and and with a mixture of fantastic bacteria. Indeed, indeed. Um, I think, Dr Abbott, we could talk to you for a lot, 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 lot longer, but in the interest of giving uh, Professor Gold a turn at educating and informing us about health, economic, health economics, we've got that, we've got... We're, we're. You've got it, yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And now we're going to have Dr. Oh, Professor Lisa Gold blind us with some economic data and explanations. So over to you. Oh, Lisa, maybe we, you could start with however you got into economics in the first place. Yeah, sure. So I, I started off actually at school, at high school, so um, just kept going and went through uni and, and post-grad. And I think the definition of an academic is someone that goes to university and never leaves. So uh, that, that that's me. And you just get older and eventually you reach professor. So, uh, yeah, um, I mean, economics in health, I just find economics applied to real areas is way more interesting than, than sitting in an ivory tower studying data sets. So um, I've been working in health since the late 90s and um, it just like um, resistance and, and what you were just talking about, it, it split into just working out what, it, what actually is the impact of these conditions on our healthcare system and the, and the costs. And in the case of what we've just been talking about, the answer is a lot and uh, <laughs> potentially a lot more and scaringly a lot more. If, uh, if, if everything becomes resistant to everything else, it's going to mean every trip to hospital takes longer and requires more intensive care and that's not good for the hospital and it's certainly not good for us as patients. So um, that's not good for the cost or the outcomes for us. Um, but also the other side of economics is actually what you, Dr. Moda is talking about, about studying behaviour, both, both what are the pressures on behaviour for, for us as health professionals and um, you know, how can we deal with those chronic time shortages we have with, with patients and um, all the pressures that go on there, but also what's the pressure on, on the consumer or, or the patient and what gives them expectations and what, how can we change some of those things. So, so the behavioural side of economics is... Uh, just as interesting as looking at the, the costs and benefits, which is often what we're asked to do in health, is people want to know what are the, what's the cost benefit of doing this. And um, sometimes that helps and sometimes it doesn't. 
So a long time ago, you told me that you get um, consumers to tell you how much they'll pay for things. Would you like to comment about that? Yeah, so ideally, um, in in terms of... Uh, how we would really like to value things in healthcare. We, we very, very rarely get to do this, but, but how we would really like to value things is to ask individual people what they'd be willing to give up to get an outcome because that, that context, that, that, that critical thing about trading is what economists see as the, the core of values for things. And it's why, you know, even in the supermarket, if you study um, people's behaviour, there are some people that, that are willing to give up extra money to get a brand of something that actually arguably has no additional effect or benefit to the you know the Audi version let's say so you can you can you can look at the behavior of people shopping about who's willing to pay more for the same stuff and if you talk to people they they really have values for brands and they really do um, get genuine additional value from paying the extra for for brand names and Mm. it's just a fascinating concept because that's how humans behave and in many parts of the world it explains why people pay a lot more for private healthcare even though as doctors you may well be saying well the clinical outcomes are no different and and that's true they are no different Um, but um, people still value private healthcare and value the additional things it gives you which is everything apart from a better clinical outcome and and that's you know that's a valid reason People want to um, people want to buy things. Mm. So you've um, asked people, what would you like to pay for to see a GP? And what else? What other questions have you asked the community to get a flavour of what they'll? So, so my my area is in maternal and child health. So uh, my my area of interest is is largely around those issues that we we know there are things we can do as a public health service and we can invest in, and they will actually help address some of that ingrained disadvantage we have in our society and everyone else's. So I think. One of the roles we're, we're trying to serve as a public health service is to try and uh, reverse some of that or at least address it. And we actually have quite a lot of interventions now we know work. We know they have consistently good outcomes for um, women in pregnancy and, and childbirth, but also for children in those preschool years. Because what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get more and more of the children who live in disadvantage we're trying to get them up to the level so that when they reach school they're ready for school that's I think that's the big target um unfortunately a lot of that costs money I mean my argument is that in cost benefit terms they're real winners they pay off massively but they take decades to pay off and um all those benefits unfortunately don't go to the state and federal government that has to pay for them up front so um it's not often an argument that we win but um i think i think that's what we want to try and impress on people is that that uh, in in family health there's a lot of stuff that we know works um families like it providers like it it costs a lot of money but it does pay off over time can you give us some examples? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is nurse home visiting. So um, for families in disadvantage, this is around um, the maternal child health service that everyone here has fantastic access to. It's a brilliant service. Lots of other states are really jealous of Victoria's service. Um, there are ways we can improve that by, for example, having a service that gives more intensive and home-based care to families in the most disadvantage. And we know we know it works. It improves outcomes for mothers. It improves outcomes for children. Um, but we've got to fund it. <laughs> so um, we need to get those resources from somewhere else. So either, you know, either taxes go up or other subsidies go down or we have to stop funding something else to fund that that's unfortunately that's that's the real harsh reality of of how we pay for things in the public healthcare system so um we think about cost effectiveness so for some programs do you believe that most of them have should have an evaluation built into them to see if they are cost effective I think a lot of what we do we know works and it's relatively cheap and we don't need to go back and do that. So, um, But on the other hand, there's a lot of work, um, work that Adam Elsag at Melbourne and others have, have done that shows there's, there's probably about 20 to 30% of what we're doing actually doesn't work or we shouldn't be doing it. So um, we do need a, lo- a lot more work on the, on the disinvestment. But yeah, so look, there's a batch of stuff, let's say about 30% that, that could do with an evaluation that currently doesn't have it. It's such um, fascinating uh, work, Lisa, and I I particularly am passionate about, I guess, accessible healthcare, and a lot of that is um, publicly funded. Um, I have 
two questions that are quite different. I guess my first one was you were talking about how it costs a lot upfront, but the payoffs are massive, but might take decades. My cynicism, or my yeah, I guess is it because you know that governments don't look like they get attributed to these benefits that they've facilitated because, you know, in 20, 30 years they won't be in the leadership positions. Um, and my second question is, which is a little bit different topic but similar to my question from the quiz, how do governments decide how much they will rebate you under Medicare? Yeah, so I think the first question, I, I, it's really easy to bash governments. Um, none of us are politicians and I think part of that sure. is it's a really hard job. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, the benefits from a lot of the child, a lot of the child investments, and I think the big thing I would love to see is if politicians stopped talking about it being a cost and started talking sure. about being an investment in our families. Um, a lot of the benefits of those investments actually go to the kids themselves when they're adults. Like so, so the things that hit are like they have better school completion rates, better um, better chance of finding em- lifetime employment, all those sorts of outcomes that are obviously go to the family but hey you know we want that as a society sure. so that that's good um in terms of setting subsidies oh it's a really tricky one because hey look all of us sitting around this table arguably we arguably we don't need any any subsidy at all but subsidies are universal it's part of having a health service is that we have universal benefits that fantastic maternal child health service is one of those that i've made great use of and um it's all completely free so um it's it's arguably there's a huge part of society that probably could pay the full cost of its health care and we get it all for free sure yeah um subsidies is is one of those things they apply to everyone um yeah sure there's a different rate for people with a healthcare card but really that's quite a small part of the population um so how you set them it's really hard and all the discussion around gps and um, the pressure on gps as a business because gps are are a you know small business um is around what those levels are and is that sustainable and do they have to charge because i guess what we're trying to do is we're trying to minimize the number of disadvantaged or at-risk people that are faced with an out-of-pocket fee we don't really care whether people like us are faced with an out-of-pocket fee that's up to us but we really do care about the number of people that are faced with an out-of-pocket fee because we don't want them to stop going to their gp because they'd have to pay even 10 bucks out of pocket I think um, nurses are coming into their fore, so that's taking the burden off um, some of the GPs and the pharmacists and giving vaccines and prescribing some things. I think that's really going to help with um, the cost of people going to see GPs and getting first-line help. Um, When you're a health economist, you always have these buzzwords, qualies and dallies. So... Which, could you just tell us about that and break it down into really nice, simple terms? Yeah, sure. So we, we are fascinated with, with getting a, an elusive single measure of outcome that captures everything. And it's actually right back to Dr Modo's example. Like, that's a fascinating, innovative technique, brain stimulation. And I was listening going, yeah, but what does the patient think? What does it do to the patient's quality of life? What does it do to... So, so the, the quality and the daddy, they're both these... Um, like they're sort of epidemiological measures. That they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to capture a single outcome measure that, it, that includes all your impacts on your quality of life as well as the impacts on your length of life because when it comes down to it, those are the two outcomes we want in health. We want to improve the patient's survival and we want to improve their quality of life and hopefully we don't want to operate on those in opposite directions. Um, but, but we're trying to find single measures that do those. None of them are perfect. Um, I, the difference is that the quality adjusted life year is is based on individual people's responses to what the quality of life is, whereas the disability adjusted life year we use more at country levels and um, internationally because it, it's it's ultimately based on experts' view on what's the impact of a condition on quality of life. But um, they're all the same thing, really. They're all just trying to capture all the outcomes from something not not just for example not just what's the impact of brain stimulation on how your diaphragm moves but also how does the patient feel does it change the patient's well-being or quality of life and what's the final outcome on on their icu outcomes so that involves further questionnaires or yeah. how do you test that <laughs> a lot of questionnaires i'm afraid and anyone that's been in hospital and had to fill out questionnaires i just apologize because that's that's us as data collectors just really trying to capture what a lot of 
Uh, we, we have very little data on what we do and how that impacts on paper, people's well-being. And there's been a massive movement in hospitals to in, including patient-reported outcome measures, which, which is a good thing. We are slowly moving away from a measure of success based on what your nurse or doctor thinks has happened to a measure of success based on how you feel as an individual patient because ultimately successful trip to hospital results in you feeling better, not necessarily your diaphragm moving better if that's not the same thing. Mm, gosh. So you just touched on a word that's done uh, used in a lot of research and registries, so patient-reported outcome measures. Um, yeah, so those quality, those quality adjustments, that that's um, ideally based on patient-reported or, you know, we're in public health, so, so person-reported outcome measures. Um, and, again, it's about trying to conceptualise well-being as something that's reported by the individual person because back to individual medicine, everything is different for different individuals and, you know, what a successful outcome is for one person it could look completely different to a successful outcome for the next person. Mm. So if you're thinking about doing surveys or questionnaires, what would we like to get as a response rate? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so in some of my work with disadvantaged families or um, people at risk of violence, then then if you end up with fifty percent of the sample after uh, after a year, you're doing well. It's that some of the populations can be very hard to involve for really really good reasons. Um, if you're looking at the more traditional clinical environment, if you've got people on a ward, for example, then yeah, you could safe with over 90% because, um, you know, you're talking about a much more cap captive population. Mm -hmm. And electronic questionnaires? Perfect, perfect. Every survey should be on your phone these days, I think. So a lot of the work we are doing is about trying to look at short questionnaires and whether they can, um, you know... Um, I know misunderstood can come in on this from psychology, but uh, do you have to ask somebody four pages of questions when you could just ask them five on, the, on a mobile phone and get more or less the same answer? And, and this is where statisticians are also absolutely essential because we need to know all the sort of rubberiness around data and how much uncertainty can we, can we live with. Mm -hmm. There's some nice data about the length of a consent. The longer a consent is, the more likely people are going to consent because they don't read them. <laughs> yeah, well, we've all grown up now with our Apple terms of conditions, so, you know, I think uh, <laughs> we, we probably shouldn't go there. <laughs> um, what else would you like to tell us about? I guess, yeah, so I guess um, my main interest is in the whole personalised medicine and where we go to because I think, and again, Dr Moto's example is great to start the show. If we think you know, anything's possible in the future in terms of how we do things. Like at the moment, personalised medicine seems impossible because you can't set, it will take weeks to send something off to the lab and it takes loads of money and all of that. But, you know, if a, if a GP had something on their computer, like a little linked lab set or something that they could test there and then, like how much different would care be for things like um, infections? Dr Abbott, you've got a question? Well, I was just... Um... You know, obviously, I'm interested in antimicrobial resistance and bacteria, and and you know, I'm I need to get you know money for research. So, so how do I um, convince someone of what the actual cost of antimicrobial resistance is in you know treating infections and, and impact on patient care? Yeah, there's been some stuff internationally that just gives you some of those broader pictures, which are the big scary numbers around um, what it would mean um, worldwide. Um, the, the difficulty always for an individual group of um, people trying to put in a grant application is to say what difference would their individual project make and... Um, I think let's say there's a lot of uncertainty around that, but but uh, a lot of the time the work we're asked to do is is to give people the big number, the big scary number, because as human beings, politically that has an effect on how likely we are to consider a grant. Um, even even if the marginal change we can make to that to that big scary number is perhaps small, but the big scary number often uh, at least gets people's attention. Yeah, and and the other thing I, I find fascinating is the drug development um, costs of new antibiotics and how are we meant to, you know, fund that if only a minority of people will end up using that antibiotic? Yeah, so R&D is 
is incredibly expensive in terms of what what companies put in and R and D. What does that? So do? so the the drug development costs that the mainly private companies actually do around the world. But um, I, I don't know. I think it's been a good thing about the COVID experience has been the fact that we've all seen what people what can happen when people actually work together. And there's probably an awful lot of potential savings around people not duplicating stuff and working together. So it will be interesting going forward to see where that tension between private companies needing to protect their own um, ideas and uh, and the public good of, of maybe some areas exactly like resistance where perhaps we could get the private companies to cooperate just like they did with COVID, obviously with a stack load of government money thrown in as well. But um, it's, I, it's yet another thing where the potential of what can happen when all these amazing brains that work in private drug companies work together um, it could yeah, it could take us to very interesting areas in the future. And I think what you've also touched on is how important it is to get a statistician, an epidemiologist, somebody in the forefront of when you're putting and having these great thoughts and developing hypotheses and studies. And, you know, you can't go back and get them in to help analyse the data. You've, these, this is such a collaborative wonderful world in epi and health stats that um you work together as a team and everybody learns something about it and um yeah and every every university has them you know we we have in our our building we you know in in health and social development there's um qualitative experts there's epidemiologists statisticians economists all working together and just upstairs there's a whole load of psychologists (laughs) Um, and uh, social scientists around the corner so um it's actually really easy to get teams of people together um I think a lot of the time people prefer to work in their little discipline groups, but it, hopefully we're, we're getting to a stage where we do work in multidisciplinary teams better because, as you say, everyone has different perspectives, everyone has different things to bring, and I think that's where we can go forward faster if we all work together a bit more. All work together a bit more, less competition. So it's just about time to wrap up the show. We've had a fabulous discussion about antimicrobial resistance and health economics and Dr Moto didn't really appreciate how interesting his paper was when he started. It's been fabulous to bring us all together and um, thank you Dr Misunderstood. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you Dr Moto for doing the panel and thank you guests and thank you listeners. So this is available on a podcast. If you go to your favourite podcast um, site app or the 3RRR um, app and away you go. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of RRR's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. broadcast live on RRR from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.